0: The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Roanoke Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Our subject today and for the next several weeks is the Spirit of Christ. I did mention that next week we will suspend for just a week or so to uh, talk about the issue of the Lord's Supper, but for the next several weeks we will talk about the Spirit of Christ. And I do admit that this study is more in-depth than usual for Sunday morning sermons, but I trust that you are intelligent thinkers, that you We'll listen carefully and be able to keep up with me and the logic of what we have to say as we present the Word of God. And then you'll just catalog all this information and add it to your knowledge of the Christian faith. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul said that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ in them do not belong to Christ. That's a very important observation. It's a very important point for every one of us to consider because having the Holy Spirit in us is the major, main, fundamental characteristic of whether we really belong to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In that same verse, the apostle said, uh, that the or he equated, the Spirit of Christ with the Spirit of God. He used both of those terms in that passage, and that helps us to conclude that Christ is God. And in both instances, Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ, the evidence points to that he is speaking of the Holy Spirit as the meaning of both of those phrases. So this would give us the indication that the Holy Spirit is God. And that is the subject of our sermon this morning. Our theme for these messages is the Holy Spirit, but I've chosen to use the title The Spirit of Christ... And that's because of the late emphasis from previous Sunday morning sermons where we talked about how that Christ is the overarching theme of the Bible. And we were looking at him in the Old Testament pictures and types and showed how he was taught there. And we just kind of transitioned into speaking about the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, just further revealing that Jesus is the main character of the scriptures. Now, while we understand that that is true, we also recognize that that God is a trinity, that he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, again, is referred to as the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. And because of that unusual terminology using Christ and God when speaking of the Spirit, some think that that diminishes the Holy Spirit and means that he is less God than either the Father or the Son, or even that he is not God. If the Scriptures were meant to speak of the Holy Spirit primarily, then we would have a Bible that is called the Revelation of the Holy Spirit. We might well have a last book of the Bible, in which the Apostle John would have written in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the Revelation of the Holy Spirit which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the testimony of the Holy Spirit of all things that he saw. Now, why we could put the Holy Spirit in there, that isn't the emphasis. And we know that's not what John said. The revelation is of Jesus Christ and it's his testimony about Christ, the Son of God. If it were God's intention that we would emphasize the Holy Spirit, then we would need a complete restructuring of the Bible that doesn't emphasize primarily Jesus Christ. And so when we come to subjects like the virgin birth, then the main emphasis of those scriptures would be to emphasize Holy Spirit activity rather than the incarnation. We would de-emphasize the life of Christ. We would perhaps change the story of the crucifixion of Christ, of the resurrection of Christ, the second coming of Christ, to be simply secondary issues to the main purpose of revealing the Holy Spirit. So I can't imagine what kind of Bible that we would have if the Holy Spirit became the emphasis of it all. He has a work that he does within the Godhead to point us to Jesus Christ. And just to show you the harmony of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as the one who inspired the Bible. The word for the study of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. You recognize, I hope, the word pneuma from pneumonia, and you know that that has to do, something to do with breath and breathing, and this is what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. He breathed out the scriptures. He inspired the word. So the harmony of the Godhead is that the Holy Spirit did not breathe out the Word in such a way that it emphasizes Him. The agreement of the Godhead is that the redemption of man by Jesus Christ, that should be the theme of the Scripture, revealing Him as our Savior. But because the Holy Spirit is not the emphasis, does it change who He is any more than our emphasis on the Son changes who God the Father is. The Holy Spirit is referred to more than 300 times in Scripture, and that gives us no doubt of his existence and his identity. Who he is and what he does is very clearly taught in the Scriptures. And yet, despite the many references to him, there's no shortage of misunderstandings of the Spirit. In just about any good systematic theology, the perversions are discussed. They either concern his identity as a person or the denial of his deity and that God is not a trinity. Those those things are discussed. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is referred to as the forgotten person of the Godhead. We emphasize the Father, even more the Son of God, but many in their theology do not uh, in, uh, speak of the Holy Spirit, don't often discuss him, and the recent heresies that have arisen over this has reversed that trend so that the Holy Spirit is wrongly emphasized. He is emphasized more than Christ, and so that causes a, a twisting of his purpose in the world, and it just puts him out of place. So we go on in our study, we'll talk more about it. Misunderstanding of the Spirit can affect our understanding of major doctrines, Misunderstanding him affects justification. It affects sanctification. It leads to perversions of worship and putting the Spirit where he does not belong and seeks no place. In the past 40 or 50 years, there have been some who've tried to remedy the misunderstandings and they bring the Spirit to the forefront, and the result of their efforts is to confuse his ministry even more. Well, as Baptists, though, We often go too far the other way, so afraid of emphasizing the Holy Spirit that we don't want people to get the wrong idea about us. We don't want them to think that we're charismatics. Maybe you shun the word, and there are a lot of Baptists who just don't talk about the Holy Spirit because they don't want that confusion. The truth is, the presence of the Holy Spirit is the reason that we can be here in worship today. It's because of the Holy Spirit that we are kept in the faith. That we remain believers of Jesus Christ. Because that power in us keeps us from drifting away from that truth. He, the Holy Spirit seals us. That's what the Word of God says. And he seals us until Christ comes again. The Holy Spirit is working in us. He, he made this change in us. He requires us to live differently. We know that a change has been made, but we may not quite understand how that change was effected. Well, in Acts chapter 19, there were some disciples in Ephesus that met Paul, and they needed some good, solid instruction about the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look at our text, beginning in verse number 1, it says, And it came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus And finding certain disciples, he said unto them, "'Have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed?' And they said unto him, "'We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost.' And he said unto them, "'Unto what then were ye baptized?' And they said, "'Unto John's baptism.' Then said Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied, and all the men were about twelve. Last Sunday, I said that this is a great text for further study. There are many differences of opinion about what happened here. Most of the variety of opinions are not our concern today because they're mostly about baptism. Now, as Baptists, I have to say, we love to talk about baptism. Uh, it's in our name. We want to talk about baptism, but we don't can't do that today. We have to leave it for another time. But I do want us to look closer into this statement of verse number 2 when Paul asked, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And these men answered, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And that seems a little bit confusing when we read this. It does not mean they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. Because if they had learned anything from the Old Testament Scripture and from the baptism of John, then they knew about the Holy Spirit. What they didn't know was about the special operations of the Spirit. They didn't know how the Holy Spirit works since Christ has come and died and gone back into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to be in us. So they didn't understand that since Pentecost, there was a new way in which the Holy Spirit works in the lives of believers. Well, as we learn about the Spirit and His power for the life of Christians, we're better able to access that power. We are commanded to live in the Spirit. Well, you couldn't tell someone to live in the Spirit if they have no idea what the Holy Spirit does, no idea who He is. Now, in the last message, we cleared up one of the great heresies that's been taught in church history. And, in fact, it's still false doctrine that's taught today. And that is the idea that the Holy Spirit is nothing but a force, That he is an impersonal influence. And so we began with this. This is what we talked about last week. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is spoken of in the same way that we speak of a person. There are personal pronouns that are used in talking of him. Someone said a person is one who, when he speaks, he says I. When he is spoken to, it said you. When he's spoken of, it is him or her. And that's the way the Holy Spirit is referenced in Scripture. Personal pronouns are applied to him. The Bible also teaches the Holy Spirit has the characteristics of a person. He has a mind. He has feelings. He wills. He has actions such as hearing, speaking, and showing. He does things that an impersonal force can't do. He relates to us. He, he understands us. He feels for us. He is our comforter. He is our helper, sent from the Father and the Son to be always with us. Now we move on today to answer another common misunderstanding of the Spirit. Misunderstanding, I don't know, that may not be the right way, the right word. We Well, I think we do need to be careful with this word heresy. We don't want to bandish that around too much and talk about you and you and you are heretics because you don't especially agree with me. But when we talk about this misunderstanding, I can say without reservation that this is heretical. Now, we've already addressed the heresy that denies the Holy Spirit is a person. And now we come to the question of his deity. He is not only a person, but he is a very unique person, and that is because the Holy Spirit is deity. The Holy Spirit is God. Now, we can say that the Holy Spirit has all the characteristics of a person, but that doesn't necessarily make him God. The angels have characteristics of persons, but they're not God. Each of us has characteristics of a person, and certainly we're not God. So angels aren't God. We're not God. So having personality or having being does not make the Holy Spirit God. But we did have to prove that the Holy Spirit is a person before we can prove that he is God. I don't believe the Bible leaves any guesswork about the deity of the Holy Spirit. In fact, while there may be the error of believing that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force... There hasn't really been that much debate throughout church history about the deity that the Holy Spirit is God. I mean, if you believe that He is a person, and if you can accept the previous biblical proofs, and this debate at getting to the deity of the Holy Spirit is a very short one. It doesn't take us long to arrive at the right conclusions. So there's been far more debate about the uh, uh, through the centuries over the deity of Christ, and that might be due to the fact that the Holy Spirit has never appeared in human form. The Father hasn't appeared in human form. And so the humanity of Jesus, the fact that he came as a man in a body, has been argued, and that argument goes against his deity. Now, I confess that I had some anguish over using the graphic that we use for this series of sermons. Can you roll me back to that for just a second, Daniela? let 's go back and look at this graphic for just a moment. Um, yeah, back one more, I think. There you see the dove, and I think that you I chose this because you immediately when you see that, you think of the dove, and the, I have the open Bible there, the open Bible, Jesus is the Word of god he 's the living Word of God, so you see the whole the the, the dove lighting on. On on the scriptures, and that speaks to us both of the Holy Spirit and of God. But I have a lot of trouble with that graphic because you see the dove on so much Christian paraphernalia today. Uh, I mean, it's it's all over the place, and people misunderstand what this dove is. We do not mean that the Holy Spirit was incarnated as a dove. Certainly not. The scriptures don't say that. The scripture says that he descended on... Jesus like a dove at his baptism. It doesn't say he was a dove, and you can argue with me about that if you want, but I don't believe the Holy Spirit was incarnated in any way as a dove. There was that settling down. There was something about Jesus in his baptism that just made the writer think about that. He came down like, like a dove. Um, sometimes I'm asked this question about the pre-incarnate appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. Did his appearing in the in a human form in the Old Testament, did that detract uh, from his deity, from him being also God? And I would say that for those in the Old Testament that experienced those pre-incarnate appearances, those that were enlightened and belonged to God, that didn't do anything but increase their faith in the living God. And so we can look at the deity of Jesus Christ and his humanity, but when we're talking about the Spirit, we don't deal with the incarnation of the Holy Spirit. So we look at other proofs, other things in the Bible, and one of the most convincing proofs that the Holy Spirit is God, to see how he's mentioned in in conjunction with the other persons of the Trinity. So we look at this first then, his associations prove that he is God. And these associations, I mean, with the other members of the Godhead. Now, there are many other places in the scripture in which the Holy Spirit is associated with both the Father and the Son. I began today by quoting a portion of Romans 8, verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. This first shows us that the Holy Spirit stands in equal relation to the Father as the Son. Spirit of Christ and Spirit of God, those are the same, and they refer to the third person of the Trinity, which is the Holy Spirit. I mentioned last week that in Acts chapter five, uh, Peter spoke to Ananias and told him that he lied. I'm not going to go into the background of that story, but I would like to notice the way that Peter associates the Holy Spirit with God. In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. So Peter said, you lied to the Holy Ghost. Then he says, you lied unto God. And so we can't miss that association that the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father. The Holy Spirit is God. And then we have other scriptures that mention members of the Trinity together. One of the most familiar would be in the baptismal formula. We call it the Trinitarian formula of baptism, and and we use that here. In the Great Commission, Jesus said to his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. When I baptize someone here in our baptistry, I take them under the water and I say, I baptize you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And that scripture clearly indicates there are three persons of deity. They're mentioned together, and they are all God. There's also the associations in the benedictions of scripture. In 2 Corinthians 3.14, Paul wrote, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. And again, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one scripture. Then this wonderful verse in 1 John, 1 John 5, 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, that's Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Some of you are aware that it's claimed that 1 John shouldn't be in the scriptures, that is a late edition, and it doesn't belong in the manuscript. Well, I, I, we don't need to worry about the terminology for that, but if you'd like to know what it is, because you may see it somewhere, it's called the Johannine comma, and they say that ought to be left out. Well, the King James includes First John 5, 7, because we just read it, but if you decide that you want to dispute the King James reading, uh, you haven't eliminated the tr- Trinity from First John chapter 5. Because there, in verse number 6, it speaks of Jesus Christ and the witness of the Holy Spirit concerning him. In verse number uh, 9, there is the witness of God, which is clearly tied to the witness of the Holy Spirit, which only further accentuates that the Spirit and God are the same. If, if they weren't, then the witness of the Spirit isn't needed. He would be trumped by God. God needs no witnesses to affirm him. There is nothing higher than him. So when he says, I am, or when he says, this is who I am, then there's, there needs to be no other witnesses. God is the great one. So we, we can see from the associations that the Holy Spirit is put into the same context as other members of the Godhead, showing us that he is deity. And then if I could just give you some comparative scriptures that prove that the writers of the New Testament recognize the Holy Spirit of God as God, uh, we could do this. So we look at Isaiah chapter 6, if you want to turn there for just a moment. Here we uh, read in the Old Testament uh, something that is quoted in the New Testament. The same scripture is referenced in a couple of places, which we'll look at. Paul understood in the New Testament that... um, God spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament, and it was the Holy Spirit that spoke. Notice in Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 11. And he said, go, speaking to Isaiah, go and tell this people, God speaking to him, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Jesus quoted this scripture in Matthew thirteen fifteen. He said, For this people's heart is waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. You might want to keep your finger in Isaiah, or the one in Matthew, because you might want to turn back to it as you look at Acts chapter 28. Here, uh, um, uh, the Apostle Paul explains, uh, Isaiah replied to whom? Well, I, Isaiah replied to the Lord. It's the Lord who spoke. Go and tell the people this. That's what God said to Isaiah. But we look at Acts 28, and we see to whom Paul attributes this command to the prophet. In Acts twenty-eight twenty-five, And when they had agreed not among themselves, they departed after Paul had spoken one word, well spake. The Holy Ghost by Isaiah, or Isaiah the prophet, unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. Seeing ye shall see, and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes are, uh, they have closed, that they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand in their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. There you see that explanation of the scriptures. You know, the scriptures are their own best interpreter. We put those together. And this is the result. It was the Lord who spoke these words. Paul said it is the Holy Spirit who spoke these words. So the Holy Spirit is God. If you want other scriptures to compare, you could write down Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34. Compare that with Hebrews 10 verses 15 and 17 through 17. You see the very same structure. And maybe you see it even better in the in the Jeremiah passage because there you see the tetragrammaton. The Holy Spirit is Jehovah. Now keep that word in your mind. I'll talk about the tetragrammaton at the end of the message. Well, next then we look at the attributes of the Holy Spirit. His attributes prove he is God. Now for you to understand this, you would first need to know what attributes are. The attributes of God are characteristics of his nature. They are descriptions of him that are revealed in the scripture. God tells us what he is like and the characteristic that make characteristics that make up his nature are his attributes. I'm trying to stay on the topic today, so we we don't have time to talk about all the attributes of God. Our purpose is not to get a full description of all of God's attributes That leads us into two things, communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes, and whether there actually are communicable attributes of God. You'll understand in just a moment. Moment. Communicable attributes are those things in the nature of God that he shares with us. Today we're more interested in incommunicable attributes. These would be things that are not shared with us, but they are peculiar to God's nature alone. Those are incommunicable attributes. Attributes. So if we can show that the Holy Spirit has incommunicable attributes of God, that he has characteristics that no other being but God has, then he must be God, because no one but God has these attributes. I hope that's understandable. It should be clearer as we go along, if not already clear. What are the attributes of God that we as humans, or no other being, angels or anyone else, what, other, what are the attributes that no other being possesses? Now, we're just going to give you four of these. First, he is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. That means he is present everywhere. We could also say that he's present everywhere at the same time. God is transcendent. He is immense. He is undivided, which are also attributes. So, everywhere is Where God is. Does the Bible speak of the Holy Spirit in those terms? Well, David said that he's everywhere. He says in Psalm 139, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Now, David's intention is to show that there is no place he could go and not be accompanied by God's Spirit. Now, for some, that ought to be a fearful thought because there is nowhere you can go to escape God. If you've sinned against Him, and you have, there is no place to escape His judgment. I'm reminded of the revelation. And what happens in the tribulation, Revelation 6 says, And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We all know the saying, you can run but you can't hide. Hiding in a cave or anyone else will not shelter you from God because God is everywhere. crawl into the cave and he is there. David said, even if I descend into hell, God is there. In his comments on this verse, John Gill said, even here God is. Hell is not only naked before him and all its inhabitants in his view, but he is here in his powerful presence, keeping the devils in chains of darkness, turning wicked men daily into it, pouring out his wrath upon them, placing and continuing an unpassable gulf between them and happy souls. Those are frightening but true comments. God puts people in hell and he keeps them there. David didn't intend to expand upon the presence of the Spirit in a a fearful way. No, his emphasis is not on those torments of hell, but on this great comfort of knowing that the Holy Spirit is everywhere, that he never escaped the providence of God. The Spirit was always his helper. And that's one of the reasons we need to know who he is. In the New Testament, Jesus promised his disciples that when he left, he would send them a comforter. Let me read to you from John fourteen sixteen, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. So if you are God's child, you have this. You have a comforter. The Holy Spirit is always with you. In that worst grief that you feel, you know, there have been so many people in these past two or three years that have lost loved ones or, or they know of people, friends and so forth, that have lost their lives to a, to a terrible disease. And there has been a lot of grief in our country for quite some time. We don't even like to talk about it, hardly even mention it anymore. But even in that worst grief that a person can feel, when you are in your unsolvable troubles, the Holy Spirit is there. And that is important for the Scriptures in our understanding. It proves that the Spirit is God, because Jesus said, I will send you another comforter. And that word another is especially important because it means another of the same kind. Or another, the same in essence, which shows that Jesus was still present in his disciples even though he left. He sent the Holy Spirit to be in them. And that is such a wonderful promise because you and I are never without the presence of Christ. And thus the title of the series, The Spirit of Christ. So it wasn't any great tragedy that Jesus should leave the world because he never left the disciples behind. They had him with them always in the presence of the Spirit. And then the scripture there is important with that word comforter. Uh, This is the word parakletos. It means one who is called alongside to help. The Spirit is always there to help. Wherever you go, there there, there he is. So that's David's joy, just thinking about the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. He is everywhere, and that's a great comfort to troubled Christians. Secondly, he is omniscient. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians, or rather 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Omniscient means that God knows everything. Does the Holy Spirit know everything? Does anybody here can hold up your hand and say, I know everything? I know everything that God knows? I think we would all freely admit we don't know everything that God knows. We can't know everything that God knows. But the Holy Spirit knows. Last week we read this scripture to prove that the Holy Spirit is a person. And I told you that this is one of my favorite scriptures because it has such great utility for many subjects. Here we see 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 11, but as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for him, them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. See Paul's reasoning? How does a man understand men? Well, you understand the things of humans because you are human. What another person is capable of knowing is within your realm. It's within the realm of what all men can know. If one person knows it, then all people can know it if they just learn it. You have a human mind. You're as human as the next guy is human. Now, I admit there's some of you, I can't understand your minds at all. Don't know what's going on in there. Uh, and, And I may have trouble, even though I'm a man, trying to understand some of the things that you say. And those of you that I'm talking to know who I'm talking to. This is an interesting point, though, when we consider the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God, because we say that wisdom is a communicable attribute. Listen to what Paul says in the next verse. In verse 12 he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but what the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Paul said that he was able to speak in the Holy Spirit's wisdom because he was taught by the Holy Spirit. Wisdom is a communicable attribute. But is the full wisdom of God communicable? And the answer to that question is no. We can't know all that God knows. Paul says in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches... Both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You find that very same thought in what we read in Isaiah 40 for our scripture reading today for the congregation. Well, if the Holy Spirit knows all the things of God, how can he be anything less than deity? Even the angels that spend all their time in the presence of God do not understand God's wisdom. Peter said they're still trying to figure why God gave us the gospel. You could look at that in 1 Peter 1 verse 12. He meant that they don't understand how that God could become man, how that He would come to die for us. They can't fathom how this glorious God who sat on the eternal throne of heaven condescended to become a man and to go to the death of the cross. That's far beyond what the angels can understand. They're still looking into the issue. Angels don't know. I am so glad that it was the infinite God who counseled with no one, who made that decision. I can imagine the angels, if they had a part in that, they would say, no, no, you can't do that. You can't can't leave here and go to earth to die for that mess. I think the angels might have said that if they were in control of this whole thing, but they don't understand it and they're not in control. God, by a free act of his mercy and grace, sent his son to die for us, and he was willing to do it every step of the way. Thirdly, he is omnipotent. That means that he is all-powerful. What would it take to convince you of the Holy Spirit's power? What is that ultimate demonstration? Well, if the Holy Spirit picked up this building today and set it back down, would that convince you that he is God? I think some people it would. It has to be an act of God. But you know the world that we live in? There are many others who would say, no, 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 that was an earthquake. That was just a natural phenomenon. That occurs with the shifting of the tectonic plates. And after all, we live on a fault line here, Rogers Creek Fault, I think it is. We live on that fault line, and as Jerry Lee Lewis said, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. That's what happens here in this area of the country. Well, let's look at something a little bit more impressive. What about the one who put the fault line there? What about the one that made the tectonic plates? What about the one that formed the earth and all the things that are on the earth? What about the one who made the universe so expansive that our minds can't fathom it? Who did that? Would you say that's the person that's omnipotent? Would you say the one who made all things out of nothing would be the one who is omnipotent? There can't be any higher power than the one who made all things... So who was that? You only have to step two verses into the Bible to find out. Genesis 1 verse 2. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And there you can go to the oldest book of the Bible, which is Job. And he said, by his Spirit he hath garnished the heavens, he hath formed the crooked servants. So what Job is saying, from the greatest to the lowest, God made it all. And how about the creation of man? Scientists are baffled about how life began. Now, even though they do assign it to random choice, they're not so stupid as to think that the probabilities of life occurring randomly are not preposterous. I mean, this is, this is really a far-out thing to think that could, that could take place. Oh, they, they've never been able to make life out of chemicals. They can take the DNA molecule and they can, you know, shift things around, but they could never... Combine things to make even the lowest life form. So what about the highest life form? What about man? Who could do that? Would you say it takes someone omnipotent to create us? Elihu said in Job, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. No one but God could do this. The Holy Spirit did it, so the Holy Spirit is God. Now, I'll give you one more, I'll let you go. He is eternal. Eternal means, of course, he has no beginning, and he has no end. Did you know the Bible never gives an explanation for God? It never says, here is where God came from. Just about every Sunday school teacher has fielded this question at one time or another, who made God? Nobody made God. God is. In the Old Testament, God gives his name. I think you know what it is. It's a very strange name. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked God, When I go to the children of Israel, who do I say sent me? What is your name? And here's the answer to Moses' question. God said unto Moses, Exodus 3, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am, hath sent me unto you. God's name is an expression of his eternality. God just is. There's no past, present, or future in God. Or if we do want to put time to it, we might say he lives in the eternal present. He just is. Well, I know that we're studying the Holy Spirit. But let's just go ahead and tie the whole Trinity together again for just a minute. I'm throwing this in for free today. No extra offerings are required for this. Uh, you, you just listen to this. In the Old Testament, God said, I am. I am. Now, that is the tetragrammaton that I talked about a few minutes ago. It's four letters in the Hebrew language, I am. And in the Greek translation of the scriptures, that was transposed into the name Jehovah. Now, probably sometime in the near future, a Jehovah's Witness will come and knock on your door, and he may tell you that he believes, or she, they believe that Jesus is their Savior, but they do not believe that Jesus is God. Now, there's an interesting verse in Isaiah 41 in which uh, Isaiah talks about his power to help Israel. We sing that old song that we love, how firm a foundation is. One verse says, fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid, I'll help thee, I will will, uh, strengthen thee and help thee and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. That verse comes from uh, that song, it's taken out of Isaiah 41 verse 10. Now just before that, in Isaiah 41 verse 4, it says, who hath wrought and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. There's so much there, it should probably go on, but I can't. This is what Jesus said to those who came to take him in the garden and take him to the crucifixion. The power of his words when he said this, I am he, caused them to fall down to the ground. Now the first part of the quote says, I the Lord. Lord is Jehovah. That's the tetragrammaton. Jehovah is the first and the last. So the one who walked on water, the one who healed healed the disease, is one who caused the lame to walk and the blind to see. That was Jehovah. Listen to what Jesus says in Revelation 22. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In Isaiah, God said, I the Lord, the first and with the last. Jesus said, I am the first and the last. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to put a Jehovah's Witness to flight on the identity of Jesus Christ. But that's not my main point. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, You can't resist talking about Jesus when you go through this. I mean, after all, the Holy Spirit is is Jesus in us. But how does that point us to Christ? Well, God is first and last. God's beginning and the end. And that's just another way of saying that God is eternal. There is no one eternal but God. No one is without beginning or end but God. Well then, what do the scriptures say about the Holy Spirit? Hebrews chapter 9 says, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit. By the way, verse 14 is another Trinitarian verse. How much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit, who offered himself without spot to God. Does the Bible teach the Trinity? Does it teach the Holy Spirit is right in there with Christ and the Father? The Holy Spirit is eternal, just like the Father and the Son. They are God, and so is he. Now, you gathered all this information today. I talked fast and threw a lot at you. And you may think, well, why, why is that important for the pastor to stand up there and talk about this? Well, let me ask you, did your granny tell it to you? Uh, did, did somebody else talk to you about this? I mean, did you understand it all from what someone else said? Well, I think this is what a pastor does, doesn't he? He gets up and tells you about the Word of God and how you can know these things. And so we try to open up the Bible, flip through those pages and see what it says. And here we find this wonderful information that you can know. That God is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you as a believer in Jesus Christ. That's, that's about as far as I can go today. The Holy Spirit is, is a person. He is deity. You can know him. You can understand him. He is the paracletos, the comforter, who's always with you. This means that you always have the eternal God on your side. And let me qualify that statement just, just for a moment. You have God on your side If you come to him through Jesus Christ as the only Savior. God is on your side. And he will not be on your side in any other way. Not unless you come through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you don't. Then you go back there. And see that. What Gil said. That God keeps people in hell. And the Holy Spirit does that too. He's all powerful. He chains unbelievers in the in the with an unbreakable chain in hell, this is what the psalmist says to you as a believer: The Lord is on my side; I will not fear what can man do unto me? you don 't fear what men can do, but the very clear implication is, you had better fear what the Lord can do. who is the Lord? I think we proved he's father, he's the son and he is the Holy Spirit. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for uh, the time we spent together in your word. Uh, perhaps maybe some would go away confused today and say, I didn't get all that, and uh, I'm not sure that I understood that. Uh, we just ask, Lord, that the scriptures would be considered, and there is so much going on out in the world today. and. Uh, there's so much being taught on television today where you, you might we might think, well, these things aren't, aren't really that important, are they? Uh, don't we just know these things? Aren't they, aren't they pretty clear? Well, they're not so clear as not to have false teachers out there that are on the airwave today teaching all the wrong things about the Holy Spirit and leading people astray. And we must know the truth to be saved. Lord, we just pray that you would open everyone's heart to the truth of Scriptures and. If we have anyone with us today who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, we ask you to send the Holy Spirit to open up their hearts to the realization of the gospel of Christ and come to repentance and faith in Him. Thank you, Lord, for your word today and for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, Please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.